Saying low, Apple Music. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to my podcast space. Right here, I'm Zane Lowe. This is the interview series. Uh, today, I'm being joined by my friend Jeremy Deegan. Ooh, hi. Hi there. He likes to join me on my radio shows on Apple Music. If you'd like to come and hang out with us anytime, Monday through Friday, we have a good time. We play music. We talk to artists. It's really fun. We spoke to David Byrne. Ooh. That was a real moment for me, being a lifelong Talking Heads fan. And Jeremy, even though you're somewhat younger than I am, something tells me you also were raised by the creative energy of Talking Heads being raised in a musical household. I think everybody was. There really isn't a time that Talking Heads isn't on vinyl in the background of everybody's household growing up. It's a bold statement. I'm not sure everybody has a piece of Talking Heads vinyl in their house, but uh, I like the sentiment. In any case, for those people that did, you're going to enjoy this conversation. It's a rare one with someone who doesn't often like to speak on the record. He certainly doesn't like to look back. So needless to say, the conversation revolving around Talking Heads was at a minimum. A very polite and interested minimum, but it definitely isn't the focal point of this conversation. What is, is American Utopia, David Byrne's incredible groundbreaking album, stage show, and film directed by Spike Lee. Now a spatial audio as well on Apple Music. So even if you haven't seen the show, you can go and listen to the original recorded soundtrack from the show and it will sound like you're kind of in the room, which is good because there's only a couple of shows left and then I don't think he's ever going to do it again. It's all in the conversation. Myself and David Byrne right here on the interview series. David Byrne, I'm Zane Lowe. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. It seems nice that we we began the conversation. I don't know if you could hear it, but I, I had here being played as as you answered. Man, that's, that's just a word I feel like is just so important to you. <laughs> that word of just being here, being in the moment, being present, and, and just trying to stay that way as much as humanly possible is something I think just really has reflected through your art and has definitely resonated with me. Is that a, is that a fair observation? Does that reflect? Yeah, I would say so. Yes. Uh, trying to be in the moment and not be somewhere else, not thinking about uh, trying to judge how is this going to play, how is this going to be. How it, I mean, we all do that in our professional lives, but. Uh, Part of it is kind of being real to people. And uh, I'm aware that when I'm talking to the audience, it's different than a play, let's say, in that uh, although I've got lines and things I want to deliver, I'm, I really want to be aware of right now I'm talking to you. And, I'm, and if you respond in a certain way, I'm listening to you. I'm present at the moment. And I'm, I'm, I'm just, not just kind of, doing these lines by rote i'm kind of responding to you and you're responding to me and we have a thing going on and i'm very aware of that and that for me is one of the most exciting things about doing what i do whether it's this show or just playing music you, the response from an audience is kind of amazing and yet this american utopia experience continues to resonate and as someone who throughout your career well journey and one that we've continued to enjoy time and time again a certain amount of this creative energy this restlessness that we really respond to that you're searching for things to inspire you and yet american utopia is in this kind of wonderful circle that's inspiring everybody else but you're still kind of doing it you're right you're in a broadway era it's like this could go on (laughs) and on and on and on and i sort of wonder how you've how you've been reacting to that because i've never known you to sit still ever well, we are going to put an end to it. We've extended it till April 3rd this year, and that's where we're going to end. Yeah, I've been doing it for a number of years now, and, and we had, of course, this huge interruption. But 
I feel like, okay, before that, I it was we toured a version of it. And so I feel like, yes, maybe I've done this enough and it's time for me to move on and try something else yeah. that might succeed and might fail with new material and see what where that leads. You know, putting the show together in the first place, this may be like one of the last chances we get to do that because you'll be moving on to something new. So let's just reflect for a second about putting the actual live show together because it is just a wonderful experience even through the restricted framework of a screen you feel drawn to it it's it's amazing how you've you've created that what was the very first image or element that would appear on a mood board where did the inception or the ideation for this show begin it started in a one of those half half awake half asleep moments when i am i imagined in my head a group of drummers kind of like a drum line or a second line drum group from New Orleans or a samba school from in, in Brazil, moving towards the front of a stage, all playing together, all kind of making one, one rhythm between them all. And I thought, what an amazing impact that would be. What a great feeling that is when I've seen those kind of groups do that. And can I do that with my music? And I just imagined it. And I was thinking of the, the songs I was working on at that moment. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be an amazing way to present these songs uh, with that kind of mobile energy and that energy of a group of players coming together to make one sound. But that one sound is the is what's most striking about it because we've seen it, to your point, drum lines before, but there's always this sense of chemistry coming from rhythms that are merging together, but everyone's playing their own kind of rhythm, right? And, and it creates something new and exciting. It's, it's, again, that chemistry. But this was like, my only job... Is to play is is just to play the kick drum, and my only job is just to play the hat and the snare, and yet the whole thing feels funkier and more human than one person trying to do it all. And it just it's like, oh my god, why hasn't this been done before? <laughs> well, it's not cheap. I mean, you got paying. That's six, true. I'm paying six players and not just one. But uh, <laughs> yes, it has it. Damn, those complicated talking heads rhythms. Why did I put yeah. so much percussion in those tracks? <laughs> exactly. And uh, it has this, um, it has a very different feeling when you experience that than seeing one player at a kit doing it. It has this feeling of this whole kind of little tribe or group or community kind of working together, creating one rhythm and kind of coming at you with it. It's just a beautiful experience watching this this film and listening to this album originally. I mean, let's not forget about the original album, which inspired all of this. Um, talk about an incredible layered journey that American Utopia has been on. And now we find it in a spatial environment. And it makes total sense because you, in a way, have been creating spatial on stage. By actually separating each drummer, in a way, it kind of has been leaning into this idea of enveloped sound. Exactly. It really works well in this, in this spatial format. I listen to the, the tracks, the mixes that were done. And yes, it kind of gets a lot closer to what it feels like to be there. When, when you, because in the theater, you can hear the stuff coming out of the speakers, but you can also hear the, the, the acoustic drums yeah. coming off the stage. Yeah, And so you really have this sense that they're kind of in front of you and to the left and to the right. Yeah, they're all around. As an artist, I feel like you've always leaned into the studio as a space of possibility rather than just trying to capture a song in a moment. And so if you think back, and I know you're not one to do so, but in a rare moment where we were able to move forward in sound, 
We've moved forward in technology. We've moved forward in distribution. We've evolved in all these different areas. And now we have this evolution in sound, which is what gets me so excited about Spatial and what we're doing. You think back to those moments when you were making those records throughout your solo career, Talking Heads, collaborations. Has it always been something that you, have there been moments when you felt restricted, when you're like, God, I wish it, I just wish I could get more out of the sound of this? Yes, it took me quite a number of years before I felt kind of comfortable in the, in the recording studio. It's a very strange environment. You're kind of isolated from the other players in a way that allows the mixer then to kind of correct or fix or adjust the balance of instruments. But it, in order to do that, you're kind of isolated. You're hearing from headphones. You're not exactly playing in the room, but you're in the same room. It's all, all those kinds of things. I find that uh, with the advent of kind of home recording, being able to record using software and laptop and all those kind of things, I can get a lot, I can get half of the recording done at home and then bring it into a studio to complete it, which makes me a lot more comfortable. Speaking of comfortable, we catch you in, a, in an environment that looks very familiar to you. I'm sure you know where everything is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a bit of a, it's, uh, it's a bit of a mess. It's a bit of a mess. I was trying actually, to be nice. I was trying to be nice. Yeah. Maybe a mess to you, but I know exactly what's going on over there and exactly what's going on over there. Um, it, how important is environment to you when it comes to being inspired and, and realizing what's, what's going on inside of you? How important is your surroundings in that moment? Well, obviously, I don't require a kind of tidy, bare bones <laughs> look. There's a lot of papers, things you can't see. There's papers all over the place and half-finished, half-finished lyrics and uh, all kinds of things all over the place. Um, <laughs> I don't need that. Uh, that can actually help me. The fact that I can reach out and grab something and go, oh, oh, let me see. Just reach out to this. Well, I wonder that because whether or not you reach out to that and, it and it's a, in a completely different context, it's completely different when you grab it now than where, you, it, where it was in front of you when you wrote it three months ago. And it might be added completely different context to something you're working on now. Is it a little bit like that? Is there a montage element to how you live your life? Yes, there is sometimes. Uh, for instance, I can, let's see if I can just turn this. Uh, so people can see. Yes, yeah, like, yes, yeah, so there's a bunch of... Uh, Folders over here. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, I like a couple of yoga blocks there. I love that. I'm into yoga. A couple of yoga blocks and a folder. That. It's folders and so in each folder is a song and work in progress. Yeah, it might just be a chord progression and a rhythm, or it might be some lyrics in progress. But I do require. I, I realize that I require time, no interruptions. So I, I leave the phone and I leave the laptops and all the other stuff in the other room. An interruption will kind of break my train of thought, and you, you know, you get into a flow state when you're writing, and it doesn't last that long. But you, you can get actually get a fair amount done. But if it gets interrupted, then you have to kind of start from scratch and get up to speed again. So I, I, I have realized that it doesn't matter where that is. That can be anywhere. Uh, it can be at my house or somewhere else. But uh, yeah, interruptions are the worst. I'm not welcome. You know, uh, one of the things I, I feel that we've always been drawn to in your writing is the importance of finding something resembling home. That's a, That's been a recurring theme for me as I've listened to your records throughout my life is this idea, and I'm not just talking about the obvious songs that reference it. I mean, it, it, it really doesn't. Even when you listen to American Utopia and you watch the film, there's a sense of belonging, a search for a belonging. And I, I've always wanted to ask you whether that's, 
too obvious an observation, whether you acknowledge that, and if so, where it comes from originally, this idea of searching for home? Well, I think like it's not unusual for a lot of artists. It felt like a little bit of an outsider when I was younger. And so you're trying to figure out where do I fit in? How do I work this? How, how, what am I supposed to be doing? What am I supposed to be doing what those people are doing? Should I just be doing that? And do, I mean, I say that in the show. I look at part of the audience and go, should I be doing what they're doing? Should I do this? Da, da, da. And you're trying to really, honestly, trying to figure it out. And um, you just know there's no instruction manual. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's plenty of self-help books, but there's no real instruction manual. You kind of have to figure out a lot of it for yourself. And um, music does help with that. Music and playing with other musicians really does help with that. When was the moment when you stopped feeling so much like an outsider and realized that that was the superpower? You know, Talking Heads as a as a band were one of the weirder success stories in modern music. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you really did kind of make people who felt like we were not really meant to fit into the normal framework of society feel heard and then therefore enough of us gravitated to your art and that helped you fit into the normal framework of society. You know, you had big records and big things. And I sort of wonder how that fit for you because you're right, like artists normally come from outside. On stage was kind of the, the, the stage and maybe the recording studio and work and just writing at home. Those were kind of like safe areas. I felt like I could do whatever, say whatever, write things, perform, do all that. Uh, I was kind of allowed to do that there. And, but then back into my normal life, I felt like, okay, I, I feel a little less comfortable in my normal life. The stage was very, the, being on stage or writing or, well, that was very liberating. It was wonderful. And then gradually, I get more and more used to it. I adapt. Now I'm pretty comfortable yeah. socially, I would say. But very, it's, I mean, it took decades. Was that part of the reason why you decided to forge forward on your own terms? Just part of it. A, a need for self-preservation to be able to take a little bit of control back from this thing of like multiple parts moving all in one go. It's like, mm, should I just kind of focus on what I need in life, let alone just as an artist? Yeah, to some extent, yes. Uh, it really was, I wanted to explore different kinds of music that I was listening to. I was listening to a lot of Latin music, Brazilian music. And I wanted to kind of uh, learn more about that. I wanted to work with some of those musicians, which I eventually did, for better or worse. But that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> and so I had to go out and do that. You know, you hear that still now. I mean, this desire to go, I mean, on American Utopia, this desire for your curiosity is 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 incredible. Um, you know, can you think of off the top of your head, I know that's always difficult, off the top of the head questions are really rough in interviews, it's not that you come prepared with stories, but I'd love to know if there was like a, a really important or influential moment um, when you started to explore the world and absorb the music of the world that, that really kind of resonated with you, that, that was something that you'll always remember, take with you. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's artists that I saw. There was the, the late uh, Afro-Cuban singer, Celia Cruz, that I, her voice just blew me away and her songs were so danceable. And uh, so I would see her live and just and, and listen on record. And it just I thought, wow, this, there, there's a kind of melancholy. There's a kind of sadness in, in some of the songs, but the rhythms are really full of life. The rhythms are really percolating. 
And I thought, that's a really interesting combination. I wonder if I can do that in my own way. I was going to say, that just sounds like you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Maybe I was recognizing either elements of myself or elements that I wanted to explore. You know, um, you've been such an incredible collaborator in, in areas of, of modern music. And again, speaking to your desire to be in the moment, you know, your work with Express 2, love Ashley Beadle, love Express 2, love what they create and 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 the impact they've had from, from British club culture to the charts. And Lazy was a moment. It was a real moment. And it's just one of a few where you've danced in that, <laughs> literally danced in that space. I only bring these up. I know you're not one to reflect, and I respect your, your your lack of desire for nostalgia. But I'm I'm really kind of going through the track listing of the American Utopia, and and I sort of wondered like when you play a song like Lazy now, what it, what it bring what joy does that bring you? How do you benefit from from working with an artist like Express Two? I know what we get. What did you get out of it? This, the, the experience of working on the song with Express Two was really interesting. I was fans of all of them and their DJ work and their remixes and all the stuff that they were doing. So when they approached me, I said, yeah, 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 let's try, let's, let's try something. The track they originally sent me sounded kind of talking heads. Because <laughs> we, we can't help it. Because we can't help it. That's what they sent. Yeah. And I thought, okay, okay, okay. And I kind of wrote to that. And then as they would do because they're remixers and DJs, yeah. they remixed the whole thing, removed almost all of those elements and replaced them with, with the, the stuff that's on the track that we know. And it was much better. <laughs> it didn't sound like it. Yeah. It didn't sound like a throwback anymore. It sounded like, Oh, this is a new thing. Uh, and it's, and they kind of tricked you. Yeah. In a way they kind of tricked me, but I went along with it. And to my great relief, it actually led to something completely different. Uh, and I thought, oh, I, I thought this is a dance track. Let me write a dance track about being lazy, which is a complete contradiction. I mean, it, if you're dancing, you're full of energy. But I thought, let me write a, a, an energetic dance track about being lazy and, and lethargic. It's amazing. It's a great moment in this incredible performance, which now comes to Apple Music and Spatial Audio. And it's an honor. We've got some time right now with David Byrne. We're talking about the music on this uh, original cast recording. The movie itself directed by Spike Lee. I know you have a you know have a history of being fans of one another's work. I love that you got Spike to do it because I think his work as a live event director is is not as well known as his work as an original film and cinema director. How was it working with him? And and I'd imagine that when you find someone that you want to work on things as a collaborator, you trust them. Yeah, I trusted Spike. Uh, he came to the show when we were in the out-of-town tryouts in Boston. He saw a couple of shows and, yeah, immediately said, yes, I want to do this. Of course, we didn't have the money mm. to do it, mm. but he said, yes, we find the money, I'll do this. I offered him, uh, Spike, is there anything you would change? You know, you for a film, you might say, oh, I think we should maybe cut out some of the middle or we should, uh, the, we should change the ending, make a different ending for a film or whatever. He said, no, 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 it's all working as it is. Don't mess with it. I'm not going to touch it, the show. I mean, there's a couple of visual elements that he added in, but as far as changing the order of the songs or anything like that, no, it is it is what it is. So then it was just about him and the cinematographer, Ellen, really just coming to a lot of shows and kind of absorbing 
what happens here? What happens here? What's the best way to shoot this part? Yeah. Should we shoot it from overhead? Should we shoot it from the side? Should we shoot it from right in front? All that kind of stuff. It was completely painless for me. <laughs> you know, for, for me, one of the things I loved about it, and I'd be fascinated to know whether you acknowledge this or, or not, is that, okay, so it starts with you. You're sitting at a desk. All right, cool. So when I was a kid, my mum took me to the cinema in Auckland and I watched Stop Making Sense. And I, I must have been 10 or 11. And I loved it so much that I made her take me the next night as well. So I went two nights in a row to see that film <laughs> in a theater. It's a true story. That's a, that's a very nice mum. It was a really cool moment for me and my mum. And it was, that's why my mum is awesome. She would, she would do that with me and, and indulge my, my, my passion. So I'm watching American Utopia and you're sitting in a desk on your own. And I'm like, oh, okay, David's going to build this. That's what David does. He wants to show the process. He wants to show the whole thing. But... Man, maybe I was just nerding out too hard. Like there are shots where it's just someone's foot. And I'm like, well, huh, feet played a really important part and stopped making sense as well. And so I'm just drawing all these really interesting little nuances in there. And I wonder whether you noticed that and whether you sort of recognize that Spike in a weird way was trying to create loving connections to, to the way that you love to put things together. Spike and Jonathan Demi, who directed Stop Making Sense, were really close. They're both, they were friends, and they both admired each other's work. There was one point during the filming where Spike looked up to the ceiling and goes, Jonathan, he's, he passed away some years ago. Jonathan, you see what we're doing here? <laughs> That's beautiful. It was, it was kind of like he's asking for Jonathan's blessing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a few similarities, yeah. I love it, and I love that. I love that you shared that. I think that's a really loving, lovely moment. The when you saw uh, when you were young and saw Stop Making Sense in Auckland, mm -hmm. were people dancing in the cinema? Yes, people got up and they danced, and I got up and I danced, and it was <laughs> I'd never been to a film in my life where that happened ever, and I I have such strong memories of just getting up and dancing, and my mum getting up and dancing, and then looking around, and no one is judging anybody. I mean, it wasn't like. You know, and you, you'll get this because it was a concert film. It was like 70% full in a theater, which in Auckland is huge. That's like, you may as well have been playing Spark Arena. It was a big turnout, you know? <laughs> and everyone was kind of dancing and it was a concert. And it was so, it really was very subversive for me as a music fan to realize that art can have an, an event-based impact on people without you having to be there. Like you, would, you, mm -hmm. were on, you were on tour in Auckland at the time. That's how it felt. Oh, that's great. That's great. It's amazing. You know, when I, uh, I think about this the American utopia experience, I, I love the way that you nurture us through the kind of righteous themes on this record without being self-righteous. You know, you sort of put these opportunities in front of the audience to do the right thing, but you understand it's not as simple as that. Have you always felt that way or is that something that you've developed over being active in time? You are politically active. You do stand behind what you believe in. But this is a very nurturing experience versus a judgmental one. I guess over the years, I've kind of learned that it's more productive to show people what's possible yeah. than to tell them, which is a, a kind of showbiz adage as well, show, don't tell. And so I thought, well, I can apply that to kind of any of the subjects we're dealing with or any of the politics or social issues we're talking about. We should show them what's possible, show the audience what's possible. And we don't have to They'll get it. They'll get it. And I think they do. They, they see us working together. It's a very kind of diverse group, whether it's gender and race and age and everything else. 
And I think they get the audience gets that and nobody has to ever mention it. But in your private time, when you're angry about something, because it's human to be, <laughs> it's very human, yes. it's very human to feel misunderstood or not heard, especially when common sense tells you that that is not how something should be handled or done or people should be tr- not be treated that way. And it makes you angry because that's a feeling of powerlessness at that moment. What do you do with that to get yourself into a place where you can go on stage at night and not be angry? A few years ago, I started collecting news articles that, that made me feel a little bit hopeful. I started just putting them into a folder. And gradually, they accumulated. Gradually, I had quite a pile of them. And I thought, well, look at this. Maybe things aren't quite as bad as we think they are. And I started, so I started a little uh, news magazine called Reasons to be Cheerful, named after the Ian Dury song. And it's still running. And kind of to my amazement, we, f- we find stuff every day. Find things that it's not just a, somebody's generosity or whatever, but people actually solving problems uh, in very innovative ways all over the world. And our hope is that when they, we, just, we write about something like that, that they'll make you feel a less, little less angry. They do for me. But it is hard. It's a constant battle. It's a constant battle. I mean, you're, we're susceptible to negative news, and boy, do we get it. Yeah, I mean, that's a booming <laughs> industry now. Yes. Uh, so kind of going against the tide and, and trying to have some news that is a little bit more hopeful, it's kind of, it is going against the tide, but it does have a little bit of an effect. I was texting with Andy Clark and I was telling her, I just reached out, I said, oh, I'm, I'm going to be talking to David Byrne. <laughs> I don't even think I had to say your last name. I think I just said David and she immediately responded with like, you know, oh, he is the best and wanted me to, to, to say hi, you know, and you are a brilliant collaborator. You know, you, you went from a, a structured band environment, started making solo records, but started to explore with other artists. What is the art of being a great collaborator? What is most important? What have you learned? Yes, I love doing collaborations most of the time. They, some, some of them fail. There's been some that have, I, I would have to say that did not work. But a lot of times they really, they're really nice. Uh, they might not all be hit songs, but some of them are really nice. I did one with a group called Song Lux and uh, a duet with Mitski. Yeah, Mitski's amazing. <laughs> She's Hands amazing. Yeah. I'm a big, big fan. So they said, hey, do you want to do a duet with Mitski for this film? I said, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I would love to do that. And then I just finished doing two songs with an Australian artist called Montaigne. Wow. Uh, her real name is Jess. Uh, her stage name is Montaigne. And I loved some of her material, and yeah, we did some songs together. <laughs> so, yes, I have not stopped doing these collaborations. And when it works, you can kind of get inside the writer or the other singer's head and kind of you can escape yourself for a minute and be inside their head and go, with, go where they're going or vice versa, they might adapt to where, you, where you're going, um, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, there's a freedom and a fun to that. Unless it's you and Brian Eno, I'd imagine you two are literally just driving each other absolutely mad. I'm kidding, by the way, but it's like no. two, two of the most incredible creative minds is my point that come together and, and over the course of you know both of what you've been doing have, have given us amazing moments. And I love that you reissued the collaborative album and 
desperately trying to find a copy on vinyl right now. And it's it's just, <laughs> but what's really interesting about that body of work is that it, it's very freeform, but also has this kind of like very mid 80s punk funk, very New York sort of freeform, but still with a structure, just very funky, very heavy kind of sound. And what is it that you love about working with Brian that brings this kind of magic out? Brian is someone who, besides just being very kind of innovative, uh, he kind of pushes uh, the people he works with to go a little bit outside of their comfort zone. He's done that with me, done it with talking when he works with talking with talking heads, which is really productive, really productive. Sometimes it's not that comfortable, but and what are those but, moments like when you know that your instinct is saying something different because it's loud? But you have someone that you trust who's trying to push you past that experience. One of the ways that Brian kind of navigates that kind of thing, and I think all producers do that to some do this to some extent, is they're great cheerleaders, they're great salesmen, <laughs> saleswomen, whatever. <laughs> so when something is kind of in this in-between stage and it's not quite good yet, but it's getting to be something really interesting. They are jumping up and down going, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be incredible. It's going to be like nothing else. They keep that in, the enthusiasm going so that you don't fall back and go, I don't know. I love hearing this because it's just further proof that every artist has that button that's available to be pressed when it needs to yes. be pressed. Like a, like, yes, like a salesman selling you shoes or something, <laughs> whatever, and just going, oh, those look good on you. <laughs> the psychology is the same no matter who you are you could be a 16 year old sitting in your bedroom right now just trying to get someone's attention or you could be David Byrne who I'm sure I, you don't mind me saying this has had more than your fair share of attention throughout your life <laughs> but that button still exists right? oh absolutely absolutely yeah American Utopia is the name of the original cast recording now in spatial audio on Apple Music. It also is an incredible album uh, in its original form. And um, we get to a point at the end of this conversation where um, thankfully I'm sure for David we get to look forward your, this is a perfect way for us to finish listening to this at home now in spatial because, as you said, it, it's closer to the, to, what, to the experience in the room, which is good because you're about to end that. <laughs> yes, yeah. You're about, to, you're about to dead that experience for the people that didn't get to make it. I'm desperately trying to book a ticket to New York right now as we speak. I wonder sort of where you go from now. Like, I mean, it's 2022 and it's been a really strange couple of years. You're sitting in a productive room. What, what, are, you, what are you working on? What's, what's important to you at the moment? I'm working on a, a, an immersive theater project that has kind of science experiments and experiences as a kind of basis. It's not really, it's not a music show. It's not a music thing. That'll happen in August and September. So I've got a little while to prepare for that. And then uh, I think between before that and after that, I think I'll probably start working on new music and see where that goes. And I, again, just like you said, I'll probably write some things, record some things, do that, and then maybe ask people, what do you think? Is it any good? Or should I scrap it all and start again? Wow. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to ask for details, but I would love one day to, I, I mean, I really would love to know who's in that inner circle. <laughs> who are you, you going to trust with that information, you know? Because I've always thought of you as this very deliberate, focused, creative person who sort of sets a point on the horizon and just like, that's what I feel like. That's how, to me, Talking Heads achieved what you achieved, like unapologetically to the point. And you've continued to do that. And we've gone with you. So the idea of you going to a room full of people and saying, is this any good? Well, 
Well, I'm not taking a, a, a survey. Let me say to you, these are close friends. Close friends who have no skin in the game. They're not like uh, music producers or anything like that. They're uh, just friends who yeah. play them stuff and go, what do you think? And for instance, uh, on this last record, I played some songs and, and a good friend said, I think mentioning chickens three times in one song might be one time too many. <laughs> 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 oh my god i can't actually remember that detail did you take one chicken out no i didn't i didn't because i just thought saying the brain of a chicken in a song for me is just it, to me it's incredibly amusing and it just creates this image of what we traditionally think of as a very stupid animal um yeah yeah i get it, I get I, it. yeah yeah and i just thought no 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 that can't come out i can't come out it's a, it's a very awkward dinner party conversation i can't remember whether you're vegetarian <laughs> vegan or vegan or not but i can imagine if your friend came around and asked you what's for dinner that would be an immediate punchline over and over again yes chicken brains yeah. chicken chicken and chicken tonight we're having chicken three ways yes. i hope you enjoy it <laughs> yeah the wonderful David Byrne taking some time to join me in conversation right here on the interview series. And uh, obviously that was a huge honor and a privilege. If you enjoyed it, add a rating or a comment. Thank you for stopping by the interview series. We'll catch you next week with another conversation.